Now there's a good song to take with you throughout the day just as you walk through your life. Amen? Please uh, open your Bibles to Ezekiel, where we'll try to order our steps in that part of his word. Um, while you're doing that, uh, I could use your help. Uh, I think a few weeks ago I told you the story of the mouse that lives on my desk. Yes? No? One night it was 11.30 even, I opened the bottom drawer of my desk, the mouse jumped out, landed right about here, <laughs> ran down my arm and took with it five years of my life. <laughs> and so ever since then it's been man versus mouse. And you know, I don't do the poison thing, it's one of God's creatures, so I don't want to cause it pain, I just want to kill it. <laughs> or, <laughs> or at least chase it away. So a few days ago I broke down, I bought uh, some mouse traps. So people told me the good old-fashioned ones with the spring-loaded, you know, with the wood thing and the tray are the best way to go. And someone told me uh, peanut butter. So I put peanut butter on there, and for three nights in a row, uh, that mouse, or, or mice, I hope it's mouse, um, it's never one though, is it? Uh, have, they've licked that plate clean. It doesn't even spring the trap. So I could use your, I'm th- do I gotta cram some cheese in there, make them work harder? I don't know how to get that thing. Yeah, cheese gets hard, and then I don't know if they want hard cheese. So my master plan is I, I'm in this for the long haul. I figure as soon as that thing eats a jar of peanut butter, It'll get big enough to maybe, you know, push the tray down. I don't know. But uh, if you've got a great idea, if you have built a better mouse trap, see me after the service. Let me know how I can capture this mouse. Wow, we're getting near to the end of our series, our drive-by series on some of the prophets. It was going to end today, but, uh, but I've been having so much fun, and your response has been uh, very gracious. You've been having fun, too. We're going to extend it two more weeks. Uh, t- yeah, okay. Take it right. Uh, that's all right. You don't have to clap. Take it right to uh, right up to Palm Sunday. So we got uh, two more weeks after today, and then it's Palm Sunday after uh, uh, already. And I'm going to take those two Sundays to do. I-, I think he's my favorite prophet. They're all my favorite, but um, uh, Jonah. I want to take a look at Jonah uh, for two solid weeks. And um, there's some cool things in Jonah. I, I think that we can share. But today. Uh, we wrap up uh, Ezekiel, and we'll continue a theme that we started last week, but I want to expand on it a little bit, and it's a theme of comfort and hope uh, and encouragement for God's people, in Ezekiel's case, in captivity in Babylon. Uh, it had been a rough, oh, 135 years for Israel, for God's people. The northern kingdom got taken away by the Assyrians. And then the southern kingdom of Judah was captured by the Babylonians. And all because, all because God's people decided to follow idols and turn to idolatry rather than to God. And all because, and this always seems to happen no matter the idol, it's fascinating how it works hand in hand, all because God's people decided to love themselves more than others. And they found themselves in a disaster. You know, by the way, um, this idea of 
People turning to idols rather than God and God's people taking advantage of the poor and oppressed rather than caring for them. In a word, in a word that most of you know by now, what caused all of this to happen in a word is Shema. God's people failed to live Shema, to love God with all of every part of them and to love others as themselves. And when people choose to go down that road, idolatry and the love of self over others and over God, it always ends in disaster. And God knows this about us and about life and about the nature of sin. So all because they failed to love God and love others, it had been a particularly rough 135 years. And now the last two tribes find themselves conquered and in captivity in Babylon. You know, this choosing, this choosing to instead love ourselves above all, one at least of the loud and ringing and repetitive warnings and corresponding promises throughout all the Bible, throughout both Testaments, is indeed this. Love of self always leads to disaster, spells disaster, while love of God and others spells salvation. And God's people, the people of Israel and Ezekiel, are living this truth out now, this morning, I'm going to try and knit together three stories in Ezekiel. All week long, I was saying I'm going to choose one of them, and I couldn't choose. So I'm going to briefly do all three, and along the way, try to tie them together under this unifying theme of comfort and hope and, and encouragement. And then uh, from that, offer one application at least for us today. See what you think. The first story uh, comes from Ezekiel chapter 16. So if you can flip to Ezekiel chapter 16, you can follow along as I read as God tells the story of Jerusalem and how unfaithful Jerusalem has been. But it wasn't always that way when God tells his story. Let's hear what God says. Ezekiel 16 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Ezekiel says, a favorite phrase of his occurs 49 times in the book of Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, God says, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite, talking about those non-Israelites that inhabited Jerusalem before Israel got there. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt. Now, that's a positive thing. Apparently, they used to rub newborn infants in salt. They, they thought it helped with something. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but that's a positive thing. Nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by, 
God says. And saw you kicking about in your blood as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field, and you grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, you who were naked and bare. Later, I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you. What old, other Old Testament story immediately comes to mind? Yeah, Boaz and Ruth. It's that picture of marriage that Ezekiel introduces here. God spreading the, the corner of his garment, kanaf in Hebrew, same word for wing. God spreading his wing over his people. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. And I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by, and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes to put on them. And you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you. The fine flour, olive oil, and honey I gave you to eat. You offered as fragrant incense before them. That's what happened, declares the sovereign Lord. And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. And all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth, when you were naked and bare, kicking about in your blood. In the next several verses, God goes on and expands on this disaster that we talked about that came about now because of Israel's choice to sin. And it's graphic, and it's ugly, and it's gruesome, and it's awful. Sin is indeed a disaster. But then God ends on this note of hope, as he always does. Verse 59. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve, 
because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Verse 63, we just sang about something in this verse. See if you catch it. Then when I make atonement for you for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed. And then this line we just sung, and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation. You'll never be ashamed again once I make atonement for you, God says, declares the sovereign Lord. Now, I want you to picture yourself hearing Ezekiel say those words to you as a Jew in exile. I want to do something with you that I think I have little doubt happened at least among many in Ezekiel's audience when they heard Ezekiel give this message. I think they in turn were taken back to Deuteronomy of all places, Deuteronomy 32. You say, why? Moses closes Deuteronomy, that book often called his last will and testament. He closes that book by singing a song over the people and blessing them right before he dies. And I wish we had time to go back in detail and look at that song. You check it out on your own sometime. But let me summarize for you. You'll have to trust me on this. The song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 follows these nine themes that you see on the screen in that order. Study that. There'll be a quiz after the service. You got those all? It's the story of God's people that Moses sings in Deuteronomy 32. God discovers Israel in dire need. Have we just read something about God looking and discovering someone in dire need in Ezekiel 16? He lavishes care on them. And Israel prospers. Sound familiar? But she forsakes God and turns to idols, forgetting where she came from. The days of her youth in Ezekiel 16. Breaking God's heart and stirring his anger. And so Israel reaps disaster. She's punished. But in the end, as he always does, Moses sings in Deuteronomy 32, God restores his people. And those nine themes in that order in Deuteronomy 32, Moses sings over the people of Israel. Now, do you suppose when God gives Ezekiel this message in Ezekiel 16 and or when Ezekiel delivers it and it's written down, do you suppose he intentionally uses the template, the outline of Moses' song in Deuteronomy 32? The themes are identical and in the same order. And if I had the time, I'd show you the strong linguistic ties Ezekiel uses 
key words right out of Deuteronomy 32. Do you suppose that he does it? And if so, if Ezekiel is humming the song of Moses as he delivers the message in Ezekiel 16, why would he do that, do you think? Intentionally follow the song of Moses. Here's a guess. How about this? He does it for comfort and hope. And why might that bring comfort and hope to a people in exile to hear the song of Moses again applied now to them in their circumstance in Babylon? Boy, one strong reason it seems to me is one great biblical principle you'll find throughout both Testaments again. And the theme is this. God did it before and He will do it again. He came through before in love and He will come through again Trust that, Israel. Bet your life on it. Comfort, comfort ye, my people, another prophet said. Take hope from that rock-solid truth of the faithfulness of God to his people. And as Ezekiel carefully and intentionally following Moses' song to a people in captivity once again to help remind them that God brought them into the promised land before and he can and will do it again. Now I've got a little doubt that some people at least in Ezekiel's audience recognized that tune. Maybe even smiled a bit or began tapping their toes. I know that song. And I know how that song ends. Our God is faithful even now. Second story I want to add to our string of three this morning is a parable. Ezekiel actually tells several parables. Yes, parables in the Old Testament. There are many. If you're turning in your Bibles, turn to Ezekiel 23. Ezekiel chapter 23 is where Ezekiel tells a parable about two sisters. There are two sisters. One is called Ohala. Say Ohala. And the other is called Ohalaba. Say Ohalaba. Ohala means tent, and Ohalaba means my tent in her. Now, one daughter we discover in the parable, represents the northern kingdom of Israel, called Samaria in the parable. And the other represents that southern kingdom of Judah, called Jerusalem in the parable. And knowing what their names mean, tent and my tent in her, which daughter would you guess represents the north and which the south? Now I'll give you a hint. Be Jewish for a minute if you're not, or even if you are. What, what would a Jew think, even today, when they hear that word tent? Oh, without question, they immediately think tabernacle. That's 
the tent. And even temple. And immediately when you think of temple or tabernacle or tent, to a Jew, right there along with thinking tabernacle, and first and foremost what they think of when they think of tabernacle is the glorious presence of God, that glory of God that rested just above and shone above the cherubim on that cover of the Ark of the Covenant. So, ohala, tent, north or south, would you guess? That's north because God's temple wasn't there. Right? Ohalaba is the south because in Jerusalem rested his temple. Uh, Jerusalem was the spot for his temple. Now, Ezekiel, he takes that song of Moses and people's idolatry and he runs in this parable a bit. Uh, runs hard, actually, with a common theme heard in the prophets, especially Hosea, if you remember. And Ezekiel expands greatly on the idea and that strong biblical analogy that our relationship with God and to God is that intimate one of marriage. God as husband, Israel as bride. And the prophets catch it, and they greatly elaborate on that since that day at Sinai when God struck that marriage covenant with his people. And so in this parable in Ezekiel 23... We learn immediately, one of the things we learn is that both Ohala and Ohalaba are prostitutes. Ohala prostitutes herself first with Egypt and then with the Assyrians, looking to them for help rather than God. And so her life of prostitution ends in disaster. And then her sister, Ohalaba the south, who watches what happens to her poor sister, Ohala in the north. But she doesn't learn from it. She also turns to Assyria. If you remember back to Isaiah when King Ahaz of the south went to Assyria for help rather than rely on God. And then she prostitutes herself with Babylon, cutting a deal with them, trying to get along with them rather than relying on God. And her life of prostitution too now ends in disaster in Babylon. And part of the brilliance of this parable that Ezekiel tells is those names he uses for those sisters, those tents. His people hearing that word again, coming now just before or just even during, there's some question of the timing of when he told the parable when God's temple was being pushed over and raised by the Babylons, by the Babylonians. And the brilliance is he uses that word tent, and the people immediately think, oh, tabernacle, God's presence with us, that intimate relationship with God. Oh, will we ever be in that again? And P.S., a New Testament tangent here. People, Peter, the apostle Peter, really knows his Bible You'd expect him to, at least Deuteronomy and Ezekiel. Remember when Jesus is transfigured in the New Testament? That glory of God, similar to the one above the cherubim, just glows from him. 
And Elijah is there, and Moses too. And Peter takes this all in. He sees it. And what does Peter say he immediately wants to set up? In Ohala, a tent. Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. The NIV says shelters. The NASB says tabernacles. Better translation. It's a tent. Peter gets it. Yes, time to live intimately with God again. Right, Rabbi? Right now, here's God's glory shining from and in you. Let's build a tent. And we don't have this quote from Jesus, but I picture on his glowing face, smiling at disciple number one and say, well, you got it right, Peter, but, but not yet. Not quite yet, but soon. See, Peter got it. Our last story. And this last story in Ezekiel, the third one in the string, is it's perhaps the most famous passage in Ezekiel. Nine out of ten people, I'd bet. Hey, what's that story from Ezekiel that you remember in Ezekiel? What would you say? I think I heard it kind of was the valley of the dry bones. Did some of you say that? I should ask for a show of hands. Yeah, that valley of dry bones. Uh, go ahead and turn to Ezekiel 37 where it appears. I'm going to take the time um, and read that. It, 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 it's particularly well written, I think, and really sets the stage for this valley of dry bones. Ezekiel writes, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. It's a great answer, Ezekiel. And then he said to me, God said to me, Ezekiel writes, prophesy to these bones. There's a sermon there, a message there. A lesson. God asks us to do strange things sometimes, doesn't he? Picture, you're Ezekiel, you're standing there, and God says, prophesy to these bones. And say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I'll put breath in you and you will come to life and then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as, uh, prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live so I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, meaning the house of Israel says, our bones are dried up 
and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, I prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel, and then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, P.S., for you theologians in the room, someone was asking me about this. Carolyn, if you're here, this was your question. This gives, this is one specific scriptural basis for the theological idea that sometime between the resurrection of the dead and before judgment, there'll be an opportunity for people to come and, and know the Lord, as it seems to be suggested here. Verse 14, I will put my spirit in you, God says, and you will live and I will settle. The Hebrew there is tabernacle with you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. Now, Ezekiel doesn't mention any particular valley that he went and saw and he looked at. But Jeremiah does mention a valley where he saw lots of dead bodies, and it's led the rabbinic sages at least to identify a possible valley as the Kidron Valley. And I've got a picture of the Kidron Valley as it exists today. I can do Google Earth enough to be dangerous. And here's an overhead shot. Here's the Mount of Olives. And then there's this deep valley it looks flat on the screen, but there's this deep valley here. And then over here is still, you can still see the faint outline of what used to be the Temple Mount for God's temple. His temple stood right about here where that Muslim shrine, the Dome of the Rock, is. So you got Temple Mount, Deep Valley, Mount of Olives. This valley is the Kidron Valley. We read in Josephus, the historian, that during valley would run with blood because of all the sacrifices occurring up here. Herod built a, like a pressurized system to wash out all the blood uh, from all of the sacrifices and run down into this Kidron Valley. Now, Ezekiel's been back this way before. He tells us in a different part, God transports him here, and Ezekiel sees that big platform that we saw last week, God's presence with those cherubim carrying it, he sees it slowly leave and go to the east across the Kidron. So some feel the Kidron Valley is this valley of dry bones. Now, if you look on the banks of the um, Mount of Olives, and it comes all the way around here, see that barren-looking area where there's no trees or nothing growing? Guess what that is? Those of you who have been to Israel know. What sits there on the banks of the Kidron? A great what? cemetery dead body after dead body and those bones have been there a long time I am sure they're very dry P.S. there's this little barren area that's backed up against the eastern wall of the temple mount you see it it's got a path running through it my goodness I'm shaking it's because of that mouse I'm nervous <laughs> see that path running through it 
This is a much uh, newer cemetery. The Muslims put it there to kind of wall up the eastern gate because they know the Jewish prophecy that their Messiah is going to come from the east and want to go into the eastern gate. So those Muslims figure they'll pack it with uh, dead bodies to prevent the Messiah from coming because he can't go through a cemetery or become unclean. But the joke's on them. Because what's the first thing that happens when Jesus starts to come from the east? Yeah, the bodies explode out of those graves. Won't be unclean no more. <laughs> anyway, where was I? There's a cemetery lining the banks of the Kidron. Do you suppose, and this place is steeped in prophecy of Jesus' return, as he comes from the east, always from the east, comes down this road here, probably the same road, because there were graves on either side, and roads tend to follow ancient paths. We'll take a look at this road again on Palm Sunday. Jesus rides down there with a donkey. P.S. I'm going with a group to Israel June 2 to 15 this year. If you want to walk with us down this literal road of the Mount of Olives, you should sign up and come. I'll be in the lobby after the service if you're interested. I've got to make this call in the next couple of weeks. If you're interested in coming, let me know. Do you suppose that this, if that whole end times thing is indeed literal to square inch, and it may well be, do you suppose this is that Kidron Valley and that those bones, those graves that are even there today, that part of the prophecy at least, be fully, being fully fulfilled, those graves are going to burst open and we'll hear the rattling and we'll see the flesh and the blood and the skin and the people stand up and we'll feel the breath of the Holy Spirit, Ruach HaKodesh, blow, and they'll become alive again right there, do you suppose? P.S. Lazarus was raised from the dead right here in a little leper colony called Bethany. Do you suppose that's the valley? Now, these three stories, and then it's time to go. Moses sings a song in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And it's the story of God's cherished, loved people. Ezekiel sings the song again in Ezekiel chapter 16. And it's the same song following those same themes. And it's our song too. In Revelation, when Jesus comes again, one of the first things we'll do is our wedding, our marriage, as the church of God to our bride Jesus will be complete. There's that marriage metaphor again. And in Revelation 15, you look it up, guess what song we'll sing? the song of Moses and we will sit down to a wedding feast with the lamb one thing that I take away from Ezekiel and I offer it to you too is to hear in Ezekiel again our story the same story it's always been of a people that God loves and cherishes God discovers us in dire need. 
And out of his great love, he lavishes care on us, and we prosper. And we take one of his gifts, that amazing gift of free choice, and when we take it and use it to forsake God and turn to idols of self, forgetting where we came from, we break God's heart, and we court our own disaster and suffer in our own sin. But in the end, always, relentlessly, in the end, in Deuteronomy chapter 32 and Ezekiel 16, and all the times in between, and every time since, our God is the faithful husband who nevertheless relentlessly keeps his promise of marriage no matter how often we cheat and restores us to himself. So help us, God, thanks to the man that died on that cross. In Ezekiel's words, God making atonement for us so we never have to be ashamed again. Man, and I know, if we pass the microphone today, it may not match up exactly with terms of what Israel had to go through, but there is pain in life from whatever source of living in a sinful world. And I know if we passed the mic, there'd be story after story after story of really tough and hard circumstances. And you may be tempted, we may be tempted to think, you know, where's God? He's forgotten us. Take hope and comfort from the book of Ezekiel. The very first thing is God shows up on that platform. Do I have that slide, Gracie? He shows up on that platform that we saw last week over the cherubim, just like on the ark, on something that looks like the lid on the ark, a rainbow over his head, perhaps to remind us of the promise he made to Noah never to destroy it all again. He shows up wherever we are, wherever we're hurting, and he offers his hand. He says, let me restore you. Maybe not immediately, maybe not in the way you expect. Life isn't going to absolutely work out in every circumstance. There's still this thing going on uh, with people's free will and sin. But one day for sure, uh, it'll all go away. And in the meantime, I'll go through it with you and weep with you and cry with you and protect you and be your defender as we sung about. Would you, would you join me in that marriage now today, please? I love you that much. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the promise throughout your word. Thanks for reminding us in Ezekiel that in the midst of whatever we're going through, you are always there in power and in might and in love. Turn us again if we need to be turned. Rekindle in us again if... We're tempted to lose hope as Israel did. Give us that hope, your hope. We love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Would you stand, please, for his benediction?
I almost gave it to you in the sermon, so it's a little bit uh, repetitive. I was going to save it for the benediction. So, But uh, John in Revelation is receiving a vision. And he looks in, and an angel says to him, and this is what John tells us. Then an angel said to me, Write this. Blessed is anyone who is invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then he added, this is the very word of God. And my brothers and sisters, we're not only all invited to that wedding supper of the Lamb. We sit at the head table because we're just not merely a guest. We are the bride. Count on it. It will happen one day. Take great hope. Because that is the very word of Almighty God. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all.